The Supreme Court term is heating up. The court has heard 15 oral arguments since it began last month. And meanwhile, it keeps adding big cases to an already explosive docket. And the first opinion should be right around the corner. Welcome to The Term by Law 360, a podcast to keep you up to speed about the nation's top court and the justices that preside there. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360 here in Washington, and with me now is co-host and Law 360 editor-at-large Natalie Rodriguez from our New York studio. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, Jimmy. It's good to be talking with you again. Uh, It has been quite a week. There have been a couple of heated exchanges between Justice Elena Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts. We'll be getting into those. We're also going to be previewing next week's arguments in perhaps the biggest case of the term, which could affect the lives of hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients. Before we get into those, though, a short grant update. On Friday, the justices agreed to take up Lou versus SEC. This case is essentially asking the court to strip away the SEC's ability to seek disgorgement. It's basically an enforcement tool the agency uses against bad actors. And there's an argument over whether it's being used punitively against the law. Disgorgement, if it's taken away from the SEC, could weaken the agency's powers and impact other agencies who also use the tool. So this is definitely going to be an argument we'll be watching in the future. Speaking of arguments, though, Jimmy, I know you were in the room for some uh, interesting set of arguments this week, right? Absolutely. It was a very busy week, Natalie. Um, There were six oral arguments that were heard uh, before the Supreme Court in the beginning of its November term. And one of them I want to be talking about is County of Maui, Hawaii versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund. And that's where some of those heated exchanges that you mentioned earlier uh, took place. And this case was about whether pollution that flows through groundwater is subject to the Clean Water Act's uh, pollution restrictions. Uh, So the Clean Water Act obviously is meant to prevent people from dumping things into navigable waters like rivers. The question is whether if you dump stuff into the groundwater that eventually makes its way into navigable waters, that too is covered. Essentially, the facts of the case are that environmental groups are trying to force Maui County to obtain a permit uh, for a facility that dumps millions of gallons of treated sewage into the groundwater beneath it. And that pollution, the groups say, it, it ends up in the Pacific Ocean and, and essentially wreaks havoc on a, on a coral reef there. And, and this is a pretty big deal because, you know, if the judges find that it's okay, basically it would be okay for a lot of other companies to do this loophole around the the Clean Water Act. Is that right? Yeah. So so that was a huge uh, issue for some of the liberal members of the court at argument was this question of evasion. Essentially, if the court rules that groundwater pollution is okay, then they're envisioning a scenario when, you know, a, a ton of companies and major polluters can just essentially dump things right into the groundwater, but next to a navigable river, say bury a pipe five feet from the ocean or something, and then they won't have to apply for a permit from the EPA. Uh, so that was the subject of Kind of a little tiff that I would say that Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts got into about, of all things, septic tanks. And it kind of (laughs) veered into this weird discussion of Agatha Christie whodunit novels. But, you know, while it was a little bit bizarre, it strikes at the heart of this case. Yeah, do tell how they went from septic tanks to Agatha Christie, please, because I I don't see the connection. (laughs) All right, let me me get the the kind of wind up here. So I mentioned how they're concerned about evasion of the Clean Water Act's permitting requirements. But at the same time, they kept searching for some type of limiting principle to the environmental group's position in this case. Basically, they were concerned that if they hold that, you know, anyone anyone who's polluting into groundwater is suddenly subject to EPA's permitting requirements, then you're going to find the situation where 
all these homeowners with these leaky septic tanks could potentially be subject or exposed to the $50,000 daily fine that comes with violating the CWA. And that's something that was really... Yeah, so, I mean, the CWA obviously is meant to prevent, you know, the major polluters in the country from uh, essentially contaminating the the, the nation's waterways. Obviously, that's meant for companies, though, because $50,000 a day, I mean... That's not a, right. A, it's pretty a reasonable steep for penalty for an homeowner. average homeowner. Yeah, it, exactly. So, so now we're in this world where we're talking about septic tanks, right? We don't want people with faulty, defective, cheap, what have you, septic tanks to be held liable. And so you had Justice Kagan, who was kind of trying to explain to the other members of the court that no, this if you were to rule this way for the environmental groups, it wouldn't create all these um, liability problems for average homeowners. And here's why: because under the environmental group's test in the case, the regulators would have to essentially trace the pollution back and say, you know, if they find pollution from a, in the Mississippi River. Uh, under the environmental group's test, they would have to trace that back to an individual homeowner's septic tank. So that's essentially impossible, right? Justice Kagan asked uh, one of the lawyers in the case. Um, but Chief Justice Roberts really had qualms with that defense. And he was saying, Oh, so you're saying that if you have 100 people and they all have septic tanks that are messed up and then no one can be held individually responsible, that's okay. They get off scot-free. So it's like an Agatha Christie novel. You have 20 people and they shoot the gun at the guy at the same time and no one's guilty. (laughs) And so they're kind of just arguing. I mean, generally in a Supreme Court oral argument, they're kind of talking through the counsel uh, through the arguing attorney, but in this case, it was really interesting that the the, the justices Kagan and and, and Roberts are, are kind of just going right at each other, and and Kagan immediately responds, you know, it, without even letting the the arguing attorney respond. She says, "That's tort law, right?" And she kind of has an elevated tone. And finally, Ju- Chief, Ju- uh, excuse me, Justice Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, who's <laughs> kind of writes often about the importance of civility in public discourse, he chimes in and says, "I, you know, I would be curious to hear what counsel thinks about that." And so <laughs> you had kind of this chaotic moment at oral arguments where, you know, four or five justices were all piling onto each other and the the arguing attorney was just kind of left letting the justices hash it out amongst each other. But you you can certainly imagine that this is going to be one where the justices are going to have a lot to say when they get behind closed doors uh, tomorrow on Friday for their uh, weekly conference where they discuss the, the, the cases of the week. Well, it was interesting to see that Justice Gorsuch was uh, kind of the voice of reason in that one. Uh, curious, actually, to see who might be the voice of reason next week, because I'm sure the cases that we're about to talk about will be just as explosive um, and and perhaps just as, as uh, you know, heated. Uh, as, as I think a lot of our listeners know, um, if you've been watching the Supreme Court docket uh, next week, the, the justices will be tackling the three consolidated cases that deal with whether the Trump administration's uh, 2017 decision to wind down DACA or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program is reviewable and lawful. So big case. (laughs) Exactly. Big case. These, I would say these, along with the Title VII cases that were argued last month that we talked about, they're probably the most closely watched cases of the term. I think that's fair to say. And I'm expecting, you know, a shoulder to shoulder press room at the court on Tuesday for these arguments. But but DACA, can you tell me about DACA and, and what's at stake in this case for those who may be unfamiliar? Yeah, so DACA provided deportation relief and work authorization for about 800,000 young people who didn't have legal status. You know, a lot of these uh, people are, they came here as kids. They might not even have known originally that they were not citizens. 
Um, and the program gave them a path to citizenship, essentially. Um, you know, beyond program recipients, states, local governments, a university system, advocacy groups, Congress members, and even businesses like Apple have all been kind of laying out their stakes in this case just because, you know, with 800,000 young people in this program, it, it, it touches into every region of our lives across the country. You know, um, I thought it was really interesting with Apple's Amici brief um, that Tim Cook signed his name onto it. He, he was saying that that's the first time that, you know, he's ever done that in, or that any executive really from Apple's ever done that uh, just because it's such a, like, high and major and personal issue. You know, Apple has hired a lot of these DACA recipients um, and they are important members of their company. And and a lot of other businesses have been making those similar arguments. Right. And and it touches on the lives of of so many people. And and everyone talks about that 800,000 you know, person uh, statistic. And, and, but you also, there's also so many individual stories wrapped up in that. I mean, uh, the, you mentioned the university system that's, that's, that's litigating the case in there. Uh, one of their briefs in the case, they talk about, uh, you know, a, a DACA recipient that went through their uh, university system named Mitchell Santos Toledo, who arrived at the, in the country when he was, you know, less than two years old. And before DACA, you know, he couldn't lawfully work um, and put himself through UC, uh, UC Berkeley in that case. But, you know, after he was able to get his work authorization, which put him through uh, university. And, and I think now he's a he's a student at Harvard Law School. So, so many individual stories um, uh, of, of the dreamers, as they're known, the DACA recipients. So this one is, it just has such uh, huge consequences for so many different people's lives. Yeah. And it's really such a technical case, though, that, I, I mean, I think it's going to be hard for, for the justices to really unwind it. Um, you know, a little background, the, the wind down of DACA was related to a 2016 Supreme Court ruling. It was an equally divided 4-4 per curiam ruling uh, because Justice Scalia had just recently passed away and there was there was a vacancy. Um, and the court had affirmed a Fifth Circuit finding that a related deferred action for parents of Americans program and an expansion of the DACA program under Obama were likely unlawful and should be enjoined. Um, so... This is all about where the executive has the flexibility to create or dismantle a program like DACA. Um, and it, it, it encompasses a lot about agency discretion and the Administrative Procedure Act, which I know we all love, love to, to get into here um, on the high court. Yeah, it, I mean, so the, the, the rescission of, of DACA is now been enjoined by several federal courts around the country and the Trump administration is appealing those you know injunctions to the high court and I understand them as essentially making two arguments you know the first is that look this this program was created by president Obama under his discretionary authority on immigration. So if it's discretionary in the first place, we have the ability to rescind it period. I mean it's committed to agency discretion. That's what they say. But their second argument is that even if it is reviewable by courts, the Trump administration says this rescission was perfectly kosher because DACA is, in its words, at best legally questionable and at worst it's illegal. And, and that's where that, that 2016 ruling and that, that, that previous Fifth Circuit decision comes into play because they say, hey, DACA is basically the same as DAPA, which was the other version of the program that was found unlawful by the Fifth Circuit. Exactly. And I mean, there's some differences between the programs, which I'm sure they'll be hashing out um, at, at, the, at court next week. Um, and, and also, you know, just to, to kind of on the other side, you know, I, I, 
some circuit courts have basically said, well, no, the, the, the decision to unwind what was essentially a promise to all these DACA recipients is it was arbitrary and capricious. Um, you know, and this gets into, uh, I think, a lot of what we've been seeing in some pe- uh, previous cases with the travel ban, um, which the court ended up ho- upholding a version of in 2017, but after some back and forth as to, you know, kind of the record on it and then the, the, the why it, it was being um, imposed. And I think we'll also be seeing that uh, last year's census ruling uh, case will also be making an appearance and arguments because that also dealt with, you know, kind of the bad faith underdeveloped record um, that I think a lot of the, the the respondents have been posing in this suit. Yeah. Uh, so in the census case, to refresh everyone's memory, you know, Chief Justice Roberts cast the deciding vote at the last second. A lot of people thought he he would side with the Trump administration at oral arguments, but you know when the vote, uh, when, when the decision came out, he essentially said that the Trump administration had put forward a contrived reason for deciding to add the citizenship question to the 2020 census. Um, you know, siding with the liberals in that case. But I, I, yeah, you're right that there was some kind of last-minute bombshell evidence against the government in that case that a lot of court watchers say kind of forced the chief justice's hand that, you know, potentially are not at issue here. So it could be more like the travel ban case where you have uh, Chief Justice Roberts basically saying that, yes, these immigration matters are fully within the discretion of uh, the president. So we'll be seeing that case on Tuesday. Um, Earlier um, this past Friday, the court actually extended argument time for the cases for the second time. So this is going to be a long one. Um, They extended it to 80 minutes, uh, half of which is going to Solicitor General and half to the respondents. Uh, Ted Olson of Gibson Dunn will be arguing for the individual DACA recipients, and he's making his second appearance before the court this term so far. Uh, As as I think some of our listeners uh, know, he was also in the Puerto Rico case a few weeks back. Yeah, and so after after Tuesday's uh, DACA argument, the court's going to turn to another one that kind of really t- tugs at the heartstrings here, and this is Hernandez versus uh, Mesa, and and this one, the second case of the day, it involves whether the parents of a 15-year-old Mexican boy who was shot and killed by a U.S. border agent can sue the agent uh, for damages in in federal court. Uh, the shooting happened in 2010, and the parents have said that their son was unarmed and playing with friends between Juarez, Mexico, and El Paso, Texas, when the officer fired two shots, one of which hit the boy. Uh, his name was Sergio Arnian Hernandez Guareca in, in killing him. Uh, the case has reached the Supreme Court before uh, when the justices salvaged the parents' lawsuit, but on remand, the Fifth Circuit has once again thrown out their case, which uh, tees up Tuesday's appeal. Well, it'll certainly be a dramatic week, I think, next week um, as the, the court tackles some of these really highly charged and, and kind of personal cases. As usual, Jimmy, it, it was great talking through these cases with you and, and looking forward to doing it again next week. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll have a lot to discuss. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporter this week, Suzanne Moniak. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.